This is ASIN, the Association for the Study of Ethnicity and Nationalism. To find out more, visit asin.ac.uk. Welcome to the, the ASIN conference, and it's uh, quite special for me because I've been involved with ASIN for over 20 years now, and um, I did my master's thesis here at the LSE with Professor Anthony Smith on immigration and national identity in English-speaking Canada. That was my, my master's thesis, so really I haven't changed my interest very much, it seems. Uh, this, this question of, of political demography, how population change affects politics, is sort of one of my hats, and the other is uh, national identity, and in particular, the identity of ethnic majorities. So this, this conference is really an ideal uh, setting for me, so I'm very delighted that the organizers have, uh, have chosen this topic this year. Uh, so the topic of my talk, somewhat provocatively, is cracking up immigration and the polarization of nations. Um, and in this talk, I'm really going to be making a couple of points. Uh, one is w very much that nations are varied uh, rather than monolithic. So rather than there being ethnic nations and civic nations, uh, there are ethnics and civics within nations. The differences within nations matter more than the differences between nations. That's one point. The other point is uh, just going to be an, an emphasis upon uh, what some have called nationalism from below, the, the emphasis on the production and consumption of nations uh, from the ground up, if you like, below the state is as or more important than what the state is putting out in terms of its uh, official constructs of nationhood. Now, if we think of immigration and its impact on national identity, we can, in the context of the ethnic-civic debate, which I'll come on to in a minute, um, we can think of two propositions. The first is that immigration and rising diversity shifts nations in a civic direction, in a more inclusive direction, because there are newcomers who don't share the ethnic origins of the majority, so the nation needs to be redefined to be more inclusive. So that's an ethnic to civic shift. But equally, we can imagine that under the stimulus of rising diversity, we get a shift in the opposite direction from civic to ethnic. Why? Because newcomers problematize the formerly taken-for-granted identity of the ethnic majority, which all just thought of itself as the nation and now realizes actually in this new civic so-called nation we're quite distinct. And so it makes ethnic boundaries more salient for the ethnic majority. In this, you would have thought, would shift the nation away from a kind of taken-for-granted civicness towards a more ethnicized definition. Now, in my talk, I'm really going to suggest that both of these things are going on. One part of the population are following trajectory number one and moving in that more civic direction, and another part of the population, trajectory number two. That's happening within the same nations, and hence the polarization. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the ethnic-civic debate, which many of you are familiar with. Beginning, uh, those of you who were at the uh, John Hall's uh, Ernest Gellner lecture last night will have heard him talk about Hans Kohn, uh, who popularized, didn't actually originate, but popularized this distinction between Eastern and Western, or ethnic and civic nations, which was then picked up later by writers such as Michael Ignatieff, Anthony Smith, and then Rogers Brubaker with his book on citizenship and nationhood in France and Germany. All of these authors are making the argument that the circumstances in which a nation was formed uh, is very important even today in determining 
the character of its national identity. So the fact that Germany did not have a secure state when it was formed in 1870 and France did have a secure uh, dynastic state in 1789 makes a great deal of difference for citizenship policies even in the 1980s, according to Brubaker. That argument that the origins of nations, that is nations that had a secure origin, had already had a state in the pre-modern period, were formed during the Enlightenment, had a high culture already, therefore developed a civic nation, and those that developed during the romantic period when romantic ideas were more prominent that did not have their own states uh, and in some way were insecure that they develop into a more exclusive and ethnic nation. I'm going to argue that that argument is essentially meaningless today. Now, it's a pretty strong statement, but I want to make that argument, get, go out on a limb. Now, there have been a series of conceptual critiques of the ethnic civic debate. Um, John Hutchinson, uh, among them, has argued, uh, and I very much agree with this, that uh, nations are contested, that there are different forces um, in society that contest the nation, and I've made a similar argument with regard to shifts between ethnic and civic nationhood. But all of us, and I think it, I would include myself in this, uh, have tended to be elite-centered in our analysis, focusing on political history, historical sociology, political theory. And one of the reasons for that is because the tradition of nationalism theory, nationalism studies, grows out of this concern of when is the nation. Um, were there nations in the pre-modern era? Smith v. Gellner or Hobsbawm, that kind of debate where we really didn't know what the masses thought. And we, so we have to make conjectures. Gellner makes the conjecture that people just had local identities and didn't think in national terms. Adrian Hastings and others would say, well, look, they translated the Bible into the vernacular, so actually the people did have these identities. But regardless, we don't have a, a, a base of empirical knowledge for the pre-modern period. And that style of analysis, I think, needs to be updated with uh, some of the empirical research from the last two decades. And so I really want to, whereas Gellner talked about inviting the masses into history, uh, the masses, I think, really have been invited into social science, into theory, and, and I think we really need to bring in some of the insights from uh, a number of more recent areas, including the literature on everyday nationalism or nationalism from below in sociology and anthropology. This is a qualitative literature. Uh, Tim Edenzer, Michael Skye, John Fox, who I'm not sure is here today, but is uh, um, on, on the Nations and Nationalism team. Um, likewise, historians, popular historians, uh, who look, again, from the ground up, rather than just looking from the state and going down, Alon Confino, Celia Applegate, Oliver Zimmer, Jupp Learson, their focus is very much on local productions of nationhood, how locals appropriated, produced, different understandings of nationhood from the center. And so it's, the nation is in a way emergent. It's not something that is given from the top down and simply steamrolled into the population, but it actually emerges through different productions and consumptions from below. What I'm going to focus on mainly in this talk, however, are, uh, is the large-scale survey research into ethnic and civic nationalism and immigration opinion. My view is simply that any of these methods will tell the same story. I mean, I'm going to be using the survey method simply because it's quicker in half an hour to relate the story, but you could equally tell this story through uh, minute books, diaries, interviews, any method. And, for example, here are a couple of quotes from some research on English national identity. Um, one says, if you're English or you state you're English, it flags to some people that I work with that you've got some sort of racism going on, argues one working, white working class respondent in Stephen Garner's work. 
On the other hand, you have a white middle class respondent saying there's nothing very positive about being English. I think that's the problem, other than violence, thuggery, and racism. Two very different views of uh, this more ethnically defined identity of Englishness as opposed to Britishness, which is the more civic identity. And I think the, the uh, quantitative evidence will tell a very similar story to that qualitative evidence. And this is a, a chart from the 2011 census of England. And you can see this is the proportion. Uh, these are, sorry, <laughs> these are 550 constituencies in England or thereabouts, the proportion of white British people who lack qualifications, which reaches 40% in places like parts of the northwest of England. In there, the places that have a very high percentage of people with low education, that is, who don't have any educational qualifications, the percentage who identify as English within the white British population is highest. It's over 80%, whereas in the Oxfords and Cambridges of this world, where there is a very small proportion without qualifications, it's more like 50-50. That relationship is a very tight relationship and I think reflects the strong connection. And it shows, I think, that national identity, ethnic civic, is varied within a population. If you have no educational qualifications, you are more likely to have an ethnic type of identity, a national identity in this country, than if you have a university degree. And that's a very strong relationship, and it turns up in the uh, ethnographic evidence as well. Now, we can go on and look at Europe more broadly, and the European Social Survey asks a question, how important is it to be white uh, as a qualification for being an immigrant? That's a very good test of, the, uh, of a more ethno-national definition of nationhood, and the scale goes from zero, it's extremely important that they be white, to ten, extremely unimportant. And what's interesting here is that the differences between individuals within any given country are about three scale points, 2.75 out of, out of an 11 possible. Whereas the differences between countries, the average score on this question uh, in a country, if you compare that, say Slovakia versus Sweden or France, um, it's only one. In other words, there's three times almost as much difference within countries as between countries. On the question, you have to be Christian uh, to be an, you know, it's important to be Christian to be an immigrant. Again, it's three times more difference within a country as opposed to between countries. If we then go and look at the world, the World Value Survey goes beyond Europe and asks how important is it to have ancestors from the country? Uh, from a scale of one being very important, that is the ethnic nationalist answer, very important to have ancestors from the country, three, unimportant. And again, within nations, it's almost one scale point out of the two possible between half that. Um, so overall, we're seeing two to four times more variation within a country on ethnic civic questions than between them. And I think this is ind indicative of the fact that actually there's a lot more variation in uh, nationhood, a lot more contestation of nationhood going on uh, within countries, and, and whereas the differences between the so-called ethnic civic nations is actually not very important. Okay. Uh, a lot more graphs. I will explain what this is all about. Um, the other thing to note is that ethnic nationalism seems to be tied to a generalized liberal orientation or tolerant orientation. So down here we have uh, a question on the World Value Survey. Is homosexuality justifiable? Zero equals never. Ten equals always. Over here, that question on how important is ancestry, having ancestors as a qualification for citizenship. So what we see, Sweden up at the top, 
is the most liberal on homosexuality and it's the most inclusive in terms of its criteria for citizenship, so the least ethnic nationalist. Whereas the places that are the most ethnic nationalists are not what you might expect, places like Ethiopia, Mali, Burkina Faso, these less developed countries that are very conservative on the question of homosexuality and very conservative as well on the ethno-nationalist question. So this is really more a generalized uh, intolerance rather than anything specific about the circumstances in which a nation was formed. I think that's not very important. You can see here Norway. This is a classic ethnic nation in the Cone definition in the sense that it was formed during the Romantic period, secession from an established state, insecure, no high right written culture, all of the rest of it, and yet it comes out as less ethnic, in its, less exclusive in its national identity than places like the US, Argentina, Canada, and so on. Countries that are classically seen as immigrant nations, civic nations. So I, again, I, I think the stress really has to be on liberalism. And it doesn't matter when that liberalism shows up, if it's in 1789, 1945, 1989. As long as you have that liberalism, you're going to have a civic definition of the nation. Um, and again, if we change that question from ancestors in the country to you must be born in the country to be a citizen, similar test of the ethnic national uh, sentiment, you get a similar ranking with Sweden up here, most tolerant on homosexuality, least ethnic in definition of nationalism. Whereas if the question is shifted to how important is obeying the laws for being a citizen, that relationship breaks down and there's no, no effect at all. So on the civic questions, there's no effect, but on the ethnic ones, there is. And so this is where I think that uh, it's this generalized liberalism and this question, by the way, we could substitute how important is it for children to obey as opposed to be curious. You get the similar kind of result. Um, so when it comes to mass sentiment, it's simply uh, how liberal is the population, how tolerant is the population. That's going to give you your answer in terms of how ethnic is the national identity. And that's kind of quite relevant as we are within a week of the 100th anniversary of the Easter Rising. Um, and, which is going to be on the 23rd. And one of the interesting questions we can ask is, why do some uh, civic nations move in an ethnic direction and vice versa? So why is it that the leaders of the Easter Rising, Pierce and the others, who were civic nationalists who believed in a united Ireland, uniting Protestants and Catholics, um, how is it that, that they then moved in 1916 towards a nationalism that emphasized Catholicism, for example. And the reason is that they desperately needed popular support. So they had to appeal to what the population understood and, and identified with. And typically, therefore, in periods of populism, when the state elites need to enlist the support of the masses, that tends to move the nation in a more ethnic direction. And if, if this, the elites don't move, populists can outflank them and force them to move in that direction. And I think if we look at events in Sri Lanka, the shift towards a more ethnic nationalism in Sri Lanka and India, that's partly arising as a result of democratization, the need to appeal to the masses. On the other hand, a shift away from, civic away from ethnic towards more civic nationalism, as occurred in most, uh, many Western countries when, for example, in Canada, the US, Australia, when they liberalized their immigration laws. This is mainly due to uh, an elite-led change that arises partly due to the spread of university education, centralized media, and so forth. So it's a percolation of liberal values to a larger share of the population that shifts national self-definitions in a civic direction. I want to return um, 
to, to polarization, however. Uh, because, um, how much time have I got? I, don't know. Um, I think you, you've, got, you've done 15 minutes. 15 minutes, okay. So, polarization, which is really the theme, and, um, and this is a, a, a chart from Alan Abramowitz that looks at Democrat and Republican voters uh, and what proportion of their voting base is non-white. And what you can see is this widening gap, so that in the 1940s and 50s, the two parties both had over 90 percent uh, support from, 90 uh, percent of their voting base was white. But as the population grew more diverse, you get this polarization. By the Clinton years in the 1990s, there's a 20-point gap. The Democrats here have about 25 percent of their vote from ethnic minorities, Republican about 5 percent. The Obama years, that's now up to about 40 points. Uh, where now almost half the, the voters for the Democratic Party are ethnic minority, uh, and it's, it's barely 10% for the Republicans. It's not just about who's got money. I mean, that's a big part of it, but it's not the only part of it. The other part of it is, is differences in uh, visions of the United States, different national identities, which the two parties are increasingly representing. Uh, the Republicans, the, the Democrats representing a more multicultural vision of the United States, Republicans a more traditional Christian and not necessarily white, but appealing more to white Americans. And it's not just the U.S., it's also Europe. Uh, Trevor Phillips, who will be speaking later on, and, and Richard Weber did some interesting analysis in this article entitled Super Diversity in the Browning of Labor, uh, in the 2014 European elections, uh, two-thirds of Labor's vote came from ethnic minorities in London. So amongst voters in London in the 2014 elections, two-thirds of Labor's vote came from ethnic minorities, whereas two-thirds of the vote for the Conservatives and UKIP came from white British voters. So that's an emerging split. It'll be very interesting to see in next month's mayoral election in the city uh, whether this is one of the most ethnically divided results uh, that we see. So part of the point here, this kind of polarization is simply a result of the fact that immigrants and ethnic minorities will tend to identify with a more civic conception of the nation, obviously because they are not included uh, in an ethnic definition of the nation. So you can see a polarization in terms of the view of national identity between ethnic majorities, whites in this case, and ethnic minorities. But that's not the only polarization going on, and, and, and this has been quite well documented. The other polarization, which I want to talk a bit more about, actually concerns differences in personality, psychology, and ideology within a population. Uh, that is polarization within white populations, if you like. Uh, and I know this is something that, that has not necessarily been talked about a lot in uh, nationalism studies, but I think it's important to realize, at least from my point of view, that the nationalist consumer is not monolithic. Uh, it's, it's commonly been assumed that either uh, the masses are motivated by money, power, and self-interest uh, in the sort of Hector conception uh, or, or in the Hobbesbaum conception, or they are motivated by authenticity and meaning and belonging and these other cultural motivation. But actually, what if the truth is, is, is a mix? Again, part of the population is more motivated by one set of mo uh, ideas and another uh, motivated by a different set of ideas. And here I'm kind of drawing on some work done by a, 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 mar a market research company, actually a polling company called Cultural Dynamics, which is run by a very uh, remarkable individual called Pat Dade, who's uh, been kind enough to share his data with me. And what they do is they map values for a population through 
over you know, hundreds of survey questions, they're able to come up with a mapping of the population on a number of dimensions. And for date, he really, they really uh, come up with three groups. One group, which, is which he calls settlers, which are motivated by security and belonging, primarily. Another group called prospectors, which are motivated essentially by money and power and display. And then a third group who are uh, expressive individualists, the pioneers who are ethically driven. And you can see these groups uh, are very distinct in a number of different ways. And in fact, if you are a political party or an NGO or a company, uh, you, are, you are advised really by, by uh, cultural dynamics to target your messaging differently to these three groups. Um, because these, these three groups are going to actually receive the nationalist message differently, and they're also going to react to diversity and rising diversity in different ways. And this is the point about polarization, is you get different reactions to the same stimulus. The, we're going to look at this question here. There are too many foreigners in my country. Uh, one is a Greece, five strongly disagree. And what we're going to see is a series of maps of people who've answered these questions and to see which questions seem to be closely linked to agreement and disagreement with that statement, there are too many foreigners. Those who agree with that statement that there are too many foreigners tend to score very highly in, on these six questions. There are other questions. These questions have nothing specific to do with politics, nothing specific to do with nationalism, but they seem to correlate well with the foreigners' question. So, certainty. I need clear-cut rules to live by. I like things to be certain and predictable. If you answer yes to that question, you're more much more likely to answer yes to there are too many foreigners. Discipline. Again, we saw on the homosexuality tolerance indicator, this is something similar. I believe strict discipline is in a child's best interest. Criminals should face severe sentences. This is a very similar question. Those who commit sex crimes ought to be publicly whipped or worse. You know, that is kind of a very... But, it's interesting that these questions seem to link very heavily to questions around inclusion and exclusion. I believe society has lost its way. I'd like to live in a time when there's more mystery, romanticism, adventure, pessimism. And then this last one, fear. I believe there's too much violence. I'm afraid to walk alone at night. A lot of questions that revolve around trust, fear, safety, people who feel insecure in those ways tend to be much more likely to be opposed to immigration. On the other hand, those who have our score high on a number of these dimensions, such as forgiveness, I believe it's best to forgive and forget, very important to help people around me, important to listen to people who are different even if I disagree. Those who score highly on these dimensions tend to be very much pro-immigration. Okay, so these are the kind of maps that, that cultural dynamics produces, and you can see those questions here. Um, I like certainty in my life, I'm afraid to walk at night. Uh, discipline is very important for children. <laughs> So those black circles are circling these questions which tend to correlate very highly with those who think there are too many foreigners, whereas the red circles are linked very much with you know, caring, openness, forgiveness, those questions. And as we go through the maps, you'll see that there's a very strong similarity between uh, the maps in Britain, and if we move ahead to France, uh, that's more or less the same map as in Britain. Now, I have the question on the European Union in there only because that's a kind of very topical issue. What you see on the European Union question in Britain is more or less the inverse of this. People who are, this is the group of people who very much value belonging, security, and they are very much against this argument that the EU is a benefit. So they're Eurosceptic, whereas these people are very uh, Europhile. 
this division between these people and these people is increasingly a product of growing diversity, whereas the left-right government versus free market dimension pitted these money power people against these people. The new division is really much between these people and these people. The point I also want to make, however, is that the colors here are less intense than on that graph. And so the Europe issue is not as polarizing as the immigration issue. The immigration issue is absolutely the most polarizing issue between uh, the security belonging people and the ethical uh, seekers and expressive individualists down here. That's France. This is Germany. I'm not going to go into detail. Italy. You can see a similarity. They all look the same. They all polarize roughly the same way between the people who desire uh, belonging and security and those who seek out novelty diversity. One part of the population is highly receptive to diversity. Another part of the population doesn't like diversity at all. They want stability. They don't want change. They're not going to be receptive to diversity. And that's something not, it's not simply a matter of construct, social construction. It's also a matter of child rearing and innate predispositions. And this is something that the literature makes very clear, that this is not something that's going to be easily educated out of people or taught out of people. These are strongly uh, you know, linked to their personalities and predispositions. And we can see similar evidence of this polarization in other ways. Um, I'm from... Uh, Vancouver, Canada, and if I go across the border to Seattle, I'm going to be a long way from the U.S., uh, from the Mexican border. And very far from the Mexican border, Republicans and Democrats have the same view on immigration. They, about 75% of them say illegal immigrants should be allowed to stay in the U.S. We should find a pathway to citizenship for them. As we get closer to the U.S.-Mexico border, the proportion of Hispanics begins to increase you start to see Republicans moving in the direction of Mr. Trump towards sending them back. Uh, and by the time you're at the U.S.-Mexico border, half of Republicans want to deport uh, undocumented immigrants. But notice the opposite happens to Democrats, uh, Democrat supporters. They actually become more open, more liberal, and by the time you're at the Mexico border, white, so this is only white Americans, so white Democrats are almost united in their belief that uh, there should be a pathway to citizenship and they should be allowed to stay. So that's an example of polarization as you get more diversity. And another example is here, increase in Hispanic population in your county where there's been no increase in Hispanic populations. Actually, Republicans are more liberal than the Democrats on the deportation question. Once you reach a high rate of ethnic shifting, they're moving again in this direction of supporting deportation. Uh, whereas the Democrats are moving in the other direction. So it's not just that people of a conservative bent are becoming more restrictionist, it's those of a liberal bent are actually becoming less restrictionist and more civic, if you like, in their conception of the nation. Something similar in Europe, and I, I won't go into too much detail, that question, how important is it for you to have safe and secure surroundings to live in? Um, that's the red line. They are, much more li or they are more likely to say, that immigration makes my country a worse place to live in. But what's interesting is that in places with a low proportion of Muslims, and that's kind of an indicator of diversity in Europe, uh, there's not a great deal of difference between the blue line, people who don't care about safety and security, and those who do. Up here, where there's a higher proportion of Muslims, over 4% in a country, there's now a much bigger difference. So under the stimulus of diversity, you get this uh, 
bifurcation, you get this polarization of opinion uh, on immigration. And this finding has now been uncovered in quite a bit of the research, and, and I, I'm not going to get into all this detail, but other than to say that sometimes the question is left, those who are left-wing and those who are right-wing, uh, as the proportion of non-Western foreigners increases, those who are right-wing become more anti-immigrant, those who are left-wing become more pro-immigrant. Other questions revolve, instead of left and right, they talk about well-educated, less well-educated. You see the same pattern here of polarization, this, this increased polarization within the population as diversity increases. So how, you know, how are we to think about this? And again, I think that gets back to this idea that the, the nationalist consumer is not monolithic. They don't react to stimuli and messaging in the same way. And so as diversity increases, part of the population becomes more receptive, more open to diversity, because they innately like novelty and difference. The other part of the population reacts the other way. They don't like difference, and the more difference there is, the more they're going to react against it. Um, Karen Stenner has written a very interesting book called The Authoritarian Dynamic, where she says, our attitudes towards minorities, immigrants, and foreigners can be predicted from our views on dissidents, deviants, and criminals, and vice versa. And much of what we understand as racism is more appropriately understood as differencism. That is, people who dislike difference per se, full stop. It doesn't matter what kind of difference it is. Um, and that, in fact, exposure to difference, talking about it and applauding differences, the hallmarks of liberal democracy are the surest way to aggravate those who are innately intolerant. Uh, but the other part of this is those who are innately tolerant will actually respond positively to increase difference, talk about difference, more diversity. So you, again, you're getting that polarization. Okay, um, to conclude then, what I've argued is it's, I believe, time in the ethnic civic nationalism debate to uh, invite the masses into theory uh, <laughs> and to, to incorporate a, a lot of the insights on, in the nationalism from below literature, whether that be sociology, history, uh, whether it be quantitative or qualitative, um, that shifts between ethnic and civic modes within the population uh, are largely to do with the relative spread of liberal values within the population. Um, and shifts between these two modes often depend upon the balance between elite and populist influence, and to the extent that the elite needs the support of the mass of the population, it will tend to move in a more ethnic direction. Uh, the growing diversity tends to polarize uh, populations in two ways. First, between uh, natives and immigrants, ethnic majorities and minorities, uh, with minorities being more civic, majorities being more ethnic in their understanding of nationhood. Secondly, but within the ethnic majority population, between uh, those who have an innate predisposition to appreciate novelty and difference and those who prefer stability and security. Uh, and it's that kind of polarization, I think, that we're beginning to see more and more of in Western societies as they become more diverse. Uh, and final point, really, then, is that this emphasis that there's more of a difference within than between countries. It's not ethnic and civic nations. It's ethnics and civics within nations. National identity is heavily contested, and the nationalist consumer is diverse, not monolithic. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you very much, uh, Eric. Uh, and our second speaker, uh, Professor Melitza Brookman, will, will speak on the demographic struggle for power.
Eric, will you help me? <laughs> it's deliberate. <laughs> Can you get out and put me up? I think you are there. Oh. No, I was on the sign. Oops. Get out there. Here. Um, okay. Now we want to we be in slideshow. Slide Is that right? Okay. Good morning. Thank you, John, for your introduction. Thank you, Eric, for the invitation. I am honored to be here speaking at the ASEAN, yeah, yeah. which yeah. I have been calling ASEAN until this morning, um, and also to be here at the LSC. When Eric contacted me to invite me, I started thinking, when was I last on the LSE campus? And I realized that, I was shocked to realize that it was exactly 40 years ago this spring that I was a graduate student here. Um, since then, well, let's look. It made me think about the world 40 years ago. Here is Houghton Street. <laughs> 40 years ago, this is before the library was built. All right. Um, here are some LSE students in 1976. Here is one in particular in 1976. <laughs> and as you can see, a lot of things have changed in 40 years. However, some things have not changed. Inter-ethnic conflicts and inter-ethnic struggles for power are still a part of our reality. Look at the conflict areas in 1976. Some of them are still around, some of them less so, and inter-ethnic conflict areas 40 years later. So, yes, inter-ethnic conflict continues to be a global phenomenon. Throughout history, there have been struggles for territory and for control of its resources. Sometimes these struggles are based on ethnicity. Um, in fact, very often these struggles are based on ethnicity. These struggles manifest themselves in various ways. Sometimes there are violent wars that are fought uh, in which a military solution imposes power. And at other times, there is a, less, a more subtle war that is playing out. This is the interethnic war of numbers. It is more subtle, but it has just as large, can have just as large ramifications. In this war, this demographic struggle for power, I call it, uh, the goal is to increase the economic and political power of a group, and the way to increase it is by increasing the size of that group relative to others. This demographic struggle for power is going on today. It was going on in 1976. And in fact, it was going on probably for millennia. Oops. Um, so today, in my talk, um, I will speak about the demographic struggle for power, why it happens, and how it happens. And then in the second part of my talk, I will apply this conceptual framework to a contemporary refugee situation. 
I have to apologize in advance uh, about my PowerPoint because I had misread the directions and I had prepared a PowerPoint and slides that are about 10 minutes longer than I am supposed to be showing. So I will skim through some slides. For those of you who are interested in exactly the content that I will skip over or skim through, I'd like to say that I will be around all day today, so if you want to stop me at any point, I'm happy to talk about that material. Okay, so we start off with the why. Why is it that people think more, that people think that the more there are in a religious or an ethnic group, the greater the relative power? Group size is related to political power because it enhances representation in political bodies, it increases legitimacy, political legitimacy, it enables participation in the political system, and it gives groups the right to make demands on the political system. Group size is also related to economic power because it enhances access to scarce resources, it increases group out input in policy making, it bestows control over productive inputs in a given territory, and it allows for group allocation of economic factors. Sure, there are exceptions to this link between population size and power as when a minority population has the power over a majority. And there are also instances in which economic and political power do not coincide. Still, largely, a relationship exists and it is positive and that is what I will focus on today. And where this relationship exists, there is the incentive to maximize ethnic population size. And when there is an incentive and there is also the capacity, in other words, the right conditions are in place, then we have the demographic struggle for power. This demographic struggle can be explicit or it can be implicit. It can come from governments, it can come from religious leaders or other influential forces. I have identified five ways in which one group can change its size relative to another, namely five ways in which demographic engineering occurs. I will speak about each one of these. The first having to do with measurement. The census is the most comprehensive measure of populations. It presents information on the relative size of groups by measuring births, deaths, and residencies. But there is no single way of defining a group, and there is no single way of measuring a group. Depending on the motivation of the government, namely those who count, it is possible to alter the definition of a group and so increase or decrease the relative size and even negate a group altogether. Um, prior to 1990, uh, the Kurds in Turkey were classified as mountain Turks. 
similarly, in Bulgaria, the Macedonians were classified as Western, Mas as Western Bulgarians. They did not have their own uh, grouping. Um, so in heterogeneous countries where size connotes power, the census is politicized. When it is published, the census information can be incendiary. In fact, um, if we go back to uh, Nigeria and think about the 1963-1964 enumerations there, um, it has been said that that census and those number, what those numbers revealed is, was at the root of the Biafra War for Secession. Um, okay. By changing national or administrative or traditional boundaries, a majority population instantaneously can become a minority. This happens by conquest or secession or, like in the Soviet Union, by negotiation. When the Soviet Union broke up into multiple countries, the Russians went from being a majority population to being a minority in an independent Estonia, an independent uh, Turkmenistan, independent Moldova. Babies are a weapon in the war of numbers. It has been said that the stork is the bird of war <laughs> since more babies, since the more babies a group has, the bigger its size and usually the bigger its power. So simple encouragement by religious leaders has an effect on birth rates. This was evident in India, for example, in the 60s and 70s among, sorry, 70s and 80s among the Hindus and the Muslims. Also, we could look at uh, Catholic and Jewish leaders that, are, uh, that propose a religious doctrine that is pro-natalist. Um, and similarly, governments can affect the birth rates by introducing liberal laws pertaining to maternity and workplace um, and, and uh, workplace rights, as in Sweden, for example, or direct financial inducements, uh, not indirect through taxes, but actually direct payment for every baby that is born uh, in East Germany and Luxembourg, Belgium at various times, etc. But waiting for pronatalist policies to bring about fruit takes a long time. Assimilation is, works much faster. Assimilation into a dominant group entails the elimination of religious, cultural, linguistic differences between groups and makes one group relatively larger and others relatively small. Voluntary assimilation is common. Most immigrants want to assimilate because that's the fastest path to success. However, involuntary assimilation also exists. It is achieved through linguistic or religious conversions under pressure. We've all heard recently about forced conversions to Islam by ISIS. But, of course, this is nothing new historically. Population transfers 
are a very quick way of achieving demographic policies, or demographic goals, rather. And they, too, have been around throughout history. There are policies of ethnic cleansing when a group is removed from a particular territory, such as indigenous populations across North America. Um, there are policies of ethnic dilution of a group which is aimed to weaken the existing population composition on a given territory. We could view the Jewish settlements in the West Bank in this way. All policies of uh, population movements lead to a change in relative size on the ground. This is something I'm going to skip. Okay. So um, what I have covered in this first part of my talk is based on my book, The Demographic Struggle for Power, a book that um, spanned the continents and covered some 35 regions in 30 countries. And here's the point that I want to make about the book. It deals with organized groups, organized states, organized religions. It involves large-scale social institutions. So, moving to the next part of my talk. It is reasonable to ask whether such institutions and degrees of organization are necessary for the themes of demographic struggle to play out. One way to test this idea is to examine how the struggle for power plays out in rapidly formed communities that do not have large-scale pre-existing institutions. Instead, they are communities that are artificial, chaotic, and heterogeneous. So in this second part of my talk, I will focus on a refugee camp and its adjoining territory, where the relative group sizes are in perpetual flux, a flux that is largely out of control of the local and the national players. I'm referring to the Kakuma refugee camp in Kenya. So for the rest of my talk, I will look at the demographic struggle for power both within the camp as well as between the camp residents and their proximate hosts. There it is, that black dot. Um, oh. <laughs> my map here is much smaller. Kenya is smaller, so it shows the other countries. I'm sorry, it's, and I don't know how to fix that. Um, just as an aside, uh, for uh, let me explain why I am working with Kakuma. Can you see here how I'm getting all this? Mm -hmm. Um, so in 2013, I began teaching entrepreneurship to refugees in the Kakuma camp and various other camps uh, online. And this is done through a Jesuit uh, organization called Jesuit Commons Higher Education on the Margins. And um, when I started doing this, and I have been doing it since then, I did not approach this area by looking for evidence of changing population sizes. I was just interested in teaching entrepreneurship. However, I think probably because of the lens that I use with which I view the world, there it was. 
I started seeing evidence of the demographic struggle for power. And I started seeing evidence of the bigger groups having more power over the smaller ones. So the more I read, the more I researched, the more I kept seeing interesting things that have since become my current research and that have since, that is my research in, um, my work in progress, and this is what you will be hearing today. Just some background. Um, there it is, Kakuma Camp is part of the Turkana County. In Kenya, some 95 kilometers from the South Sudan border, which is why about 50% of the refugees are from South Sudan and specifically the two most important uh, ethnic groups there. Um, refugee shelter was established in 1991 by the UN High Commissioner for Refugees and has continued to grow erratically but nevertheless to grow so that today it consists of four separate camps. Here is Kakuma Camp. At the time of the arrival, the local population numbered 8,000 people. Today, it is, today the population of the refugees is over 180,000 refugees. The environment is semi-arid, desert, very desolate place, average temperature 40 degrees Celsius, and please note that in Swahili, Kakuma means nowhere, and that is apt given the way the whole region has been treated. In this space, several actors come together in reluctant relationships. Two compete for scarce resources to enable them to survive, that is the refugees and the proximate hosts. They compete for water, for access to education, for firewood, for space to build their homes, for jobs and the other two facilitate that, composition, that competition. Refugees um, in Kakuma, about 20 ethnic groups across 10 nationalities. As I said, mostly South Sudan, about 25% from Somalia and the others from Ethiopia, Sudan, um, DR Congo, etc. Um, also, the proximate hosts adjoining the camp, uh, mostly Turkana, although there is a significant um, group of Kenyan Somalis who migrated there in the 1960s. The distant host, namely the Kenyan government, reluctantly assumed jurisdiction over Kakuma, and the reason they assumed that is because they had to. Uh, they were signatories to the International Convention on Refugees, and therefore they had to shelter the refugees. Um, international donors, ooh, there is a spelling mistake. Okay. That's supposed to be UNHCR. I beg your pardon. Just got that. The camp is administered by the UNHCR, assisted by World Food Program, International Organization for uh, Migration, and various others. 
So to see how the above actors interact, I will follow the conceptual framework I presented above and try to identify how the demographic struggle plays out both inside the camp and outside the camp. All right, let's start off with size of group. Inside the Kakuma refugee camp, most of the time, ethnic groups are housed separately. They function as separate political and economic entities. The bigger the group, the more power it wields across the space. International bodies are nominally in charge of the camp, but in reality, the real power lies with the unofficial groups. Traditional legal systems and justice systems operate within the camp, and every group has its own. The animosities from their home countries have been imported to the camp, and this is most evident with the two biggest groups, the Dinka and the Newer, um, from South Sudan, who do not interact in the camp. They govern and they provide security to their own peoples. In their interactions with hosts and donors, refugees make demands as a group. They request legitimacy as a group. The bigger they are, the more attention they get, and there's numerous examples of this. Access to scarce resources, control over productive inputs, and enhanced allocation of economic favors all happen by group in the Kakuma space. Individual and group survival prospects are enhanced if people stick together. This is clear in the formal and the informal economies that exist side by side. At the core of the formal economy are the international donors who provide daily sustenance to the refugees as well as health and education services. In executing their duties and carrying out their mission, they interact in the local economy. They participate as consumers, they participate as employers, they even uh, supply, they even participate as a bank of sorts. But this formal economy is insufficient to provide the sustenance that the Kakuma residents need. So the informal economy has arisen, it complements it, and it, sub and it, it, um, uh, it supplements it. And at the core of the informal economy are the refugees and their proximate hosts. Refugees take their daily allocations of water, food, and the occasional firewood. To that, they add remittances that they receive. And yes, as an aside, 80% of Kakuma refugees receive remittances from the diaspora. So they uh, add those remittances, and then they trade and they sell. The bigger the group, the more they collectively receive, and therefore the more they can sell for profit and so diversify their diet, invest in entrepreneurial activities, purchase clothing, etc. 
Every refugee gets the same allocation from the donors, but how they monetize it depends on the relative strength of their group network. And what about five minutes? Wow. <laughs> It seems like you have more time. <laughs> I think we should have a competition for the time resources. All right. What about the Turkana? The Turkana, uh, 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 uh. all right. There has been uh, effectively a de facto bias against the Turkana in terms of all of these points. And I will skip this. Talk to me about this afterwards. Ask me questions. I, um, Suffice it to say that the Turkana got the short end of the stick. Let's quickly look at the five points, which I'm not going to get to talk about, the five ways in which the um, demographic struggle or demographic engineering can occur. Here is probably the, uh, the statist demographic statistic you've been waiting for. This shows you how over time, the Turkana have been overpowered, overwhelmed. Uh, skip. Gosh. Um, all right. I will skip all of these. I wanted to discuss, um, with respect to boundary alterations, they occurred, but there was no specific policy for demographic uh, engineering purposes. Uh, in terms of changing birth rates, unequivocally that the Turkana have higher infant mortality rates um, than the refugee populations. Um, with respect to assimilation, Non-integration refugee policy by the Kenyan government. This is the only clear case of uh, a specific policy aimed at not allowing the refugees to be part of Kenya. Um, okay. How's that for moving along? Um, Let me cut to the chase. In conclusion, in the Kakuma setting, largely absent are formal demographic engineering policies else, that are elsewhere sponsored by political and religious leaders. Instead, it is the informal, spontaneous, and unintended activities of artificial grouping of people coupled with minimal unrelated ad hoc government policies that have changed the relative size of ethnic groups no less effectively than if they were guided by large-scale demographic engineering policies. The end result is that both inside and outside the camp there is a demographic struggle for power and it seems that the biggest demographic losers are the proximate hosts, the Turkana. Let's come back to London. Let's come back to Europe, to contemporary Europe. 
we cannot but draw some, or at least I cannot, but draw some parallels in my mind between the Kakuma experience and contemporary Europe with its own refugee crisis as the relative sizes of ethnic and religious groups change in Britain, Germany, Italy, and Greece. And if you invite me back in 40 years, I'll discuss that. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, uh, thank you for that, for a very stimulating talk. I'm sorry about the politically biased clock. <laughs> we shall shoot it after the conference. No, I think it's ethnic bias. Ethnically <laughs> biased. Okay, well, we've got time for, for questions. Um, yeah, uh, perhaps we can take them in groups. Uh, uh, we have uh, three people over here and one, one person. Uh, uh, five, six. Okay, we'll take the, the three ones over here first. Yeah. Uh, my question is to Professor Kaufman. It's about uh, the idea of ethnic democracy, ethnic nationalism from below. I think that the question is whether the, the, the civic nationalism is actually, which is acquires today the form of multiculturalism, is actually a theory of nationalism. What we, uh, or perhaps what we are witnessing from the elites is uh, an attempt to denationalize the nation state completely. It's not, so what we see in the masses is a reaction not to actually to denationalization if we think that uh, national identity is important feature. So that uh, attempt to denationalize is the one which we, there is a failure to create a liberal theory of, of nationalism. Since it is not around, what people react is by adopting theories of nationalism which exists, which is illiberal. Yeah, I think uh, we'll take the other, other two uh, and then uh, perhaps... Uh... Um, hello, uh, my name is Emmanuel Dallemulla. I'm from the Univer Catholic University of Leuven and I have a question for Professor Kaufman. I would like you to elaborate a little bit upon the relationship between education and uh, ethnic identity or more ethnic-based uh, understanding of the nation. Because at the beginning of the presentation you were saying that more educated people are less likely to uh, subscribe to such an understanding. But then you were talking at the end about innatively uh, um, people who need more uh, security, certainty and belonging. So I was wondering whether this is something that, that is innate or education can have an effect on that. And also, um, since you were saying that there is more polarization within society than across societies, I was wondering whether you find also evidence that more educated societies are less likely, precisely because there are more educated people, to uh, subscribe to ethnic understandings of, uh, and be more exclusive or less exclusive. So if you can just elaborate upon that, thanks. Uh, a third question? Uh, Thank you for the two amazing presentations. I think they're a great way to begin a fantastic conference. Uh, but I do have a question uh, to Eric regarding um, the, the study that was done in 2016 concerning uh, the views on immigration uh, and no north to south, uh, how that changes uh, between the states. Uh, I was wondering, uh, Kasich and... Uh, uh, Marco Rubio, they had uh, s strong support in the north, right? But 
uh, Donald Trump still has unbelievable support in the North. Uh, it, is a, it is a bastion of support for him. So could you possibly explain that, why we see uh, so much support uh, in places where, like the study uh, said, that, we, you know, that should be the territory of, uh, of Kasich now? Yeah. Uh, um, okay, well, Eric, uh, would you... Sorry. Um, just, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Um, yes, yeah, so, so I'll just take those in turn. So the first question, a very good question, are we, is what the masses are expressing more in opposition to an attempt to denationalize in a way, uh, rather than a shift towards civic? But I guess I would slightly differ in that I think you, you, you can see a sort of uh, civic type of nationalism being expressed by elites. Uh, and I know Cobbin wrote about this as early as 1945, that state elites have a certain project that involves unity and focuses on, say, economic development or state power and achievements. And I do think there is a narrative of, of nationalism that could be based around achieve, you know, national achievements status in the world. Um, so I don't necessarily think that, that it is, is a question of, of nationalism versus anti-nationalism, if you like. I mean, a good example of this, even in the US primaries, where you can see that somebody like uh, Ted Cruz expressing uh, a kind of quite hardline nationalism, but it's based upon an aggressive foreign policy. It's based upon religion, but it's not as you know based as much around a kind of white Christian ethnicity as as the way Trump is framing. Uh, so I don't think that yeah. I mean, I do think it really is a, a contestation between a more civic vision of the nation. There is a left wing vision of the nation, a liberal vision of the nation. I, I actually think it's not simply about cosmopolitanism versus nationalism. But we can have that discussion in, in further detail. It's a good question. Uh, there was a second question then on, uh, over here on the question of the two questions. One was, you said that at, at the beginning I said that there's this link between education uh, on the one hand and a, more, and a less ethnic nationalist orientation. And later I seem to indicate it's about personality, something hardwired. Uh, actually, there is a relationship between education and the answers to some of those personality questions. So it is true that those with, who are younger, university educated, uh, and to some extent women more than men, do, do score a sort of more, you know, a less authoritarian or, or tend to uh, score uh, less intensely on those security questions. However, it's only part of it. So in other words, yes, education Presumably, in theory, if you increased education levels and everyone had a degree, that would have an absolutely would make a big impact on the total numbers, but you would still get a polarization even within educated people between those who, who are more security-oriented and those who are more uh, you know, expressive and ethically oriented. So I think that it's part... My answer to you is that education is part of the answer, but it's not uh, by any means most of the answer. Uh, and, and last question, yes, true, uh, <laughs> Trump, and why is he doing so well in New York and Massachusetts and places like that? I mean, I think that the thing I'd say is, is of course, that's the Republican primary. It's not the U.S. population. And so you are, it's quite idiosyncratic who is voting in those primaries from state to state. I think there's a lot of state-level stuff going on, supply-side factors, who's running. You know, so Kasich, it's his home state, for example. He does well. Um, so I think that is is playing into it. It's also the case that it's not just white. I mean, that 
graph is just white Republicans, right? So in, a, in some of these states, you may get more or... Uh, so, for example, I think what's going on in, in California or in... in um, you know, in, in some of the, the states closer to the U.S. border, is you're going you're to get more Latino Republicans who are going to be voting, and they are less likely to go for Trump. So they're going to skew those results. If it was just white Republicans, we might see stronger Trump votes in some of those states closer to Mexico. So. Okay, yeah. Would you like to make any comments on, on these questions, or, yeah. Okay. Uh, we'll take a, 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 a second round, yes. Um, yeah, um, hang on. Uh, yes, uh, sorry. Have we got the microphone? Yeah. Yeah, yeah please. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, thank you, Zef Siegel from um, Ben Gurion University in Israel. Um, I have a question for each, so I'll start with uh, um, Professor uh, Milika. Um, I, wa I was wondering about the second part of your talk. Um, about the issue of, of demographic struggle for power, not from the state, but between the different ethnic groups. Because I was thinking it would be amazing to look at the different things inside the refugee camp, border alterations, for example, where they're situated and how they try to either block other ethnic groups from coming into their, their um, neighborhoods or anything else, um, assimilation, smaller groups could st st um, start assimilating with other small groups and create other bigger ethnic groups. So I was wondering if that could also fit into um, your uh, idea of demographic struggle for, for power from below in some ways. Um, and for Professor Kaufman, I agree with the idea of connecting between uh, or thinking about civic ethnic in terms of part of a nation, like different aspects inside one nation. But I was wondering whether the connection you made between liberalism, education, and non-ethnic um, nationalism, isn't that uh, kind of an ideological narrative on your behalf? Which nationalism you see as better? So you, you, you say at some point that civic nationalism is, in a way, higher rated. So you connect that to education. You connect that to liberalism. And isn't that something very skewed for contemporary or for current education? Or Yeah, OK, good. Um, and the sec second question over here. Um, Odell Haklai from Queen's University in, uh, in Canada. Question for each, for each of you. Uh, uh, so, Professor Bookman, um, I was very interested in, in uh, the reasoning of why group size uh, is related to power, why it's important. Uh, but I, I was also struck that the reasons you gave all have to do with representation and voting. Where that, that's where uh, uh, um, issues that relate to democratic procedures, at least. So, does demography also matter in contexts that are non-democratic, which I assume they do, but then the question is why? Uh, where, you don't, where representation and participation in politics doesn't really matter. Um, and for Professor Kaufman, um, and by the way, thank you both for, for great talks. They were very informative, and I learned a lot from, from both of you. Uh, for Professor Kaufman, um, so uh, uh, one of the things that, that, 
uh, was conspicuous in your slides was that it's not only the, uh, the liberal tendencies that matter, but also the contact, the level of contact that the populations have with immigrants when you looked at the differences within the United States and, and within France. Um, and, uh, and then that makes me ask, uh, 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 does that, do you find similar trends in the United Kingdom? And, and relatedly, you have countries that seem to be more open than others. You do, know, you do identify some. So Norway and Sweden seem to be more liberal than others. But does that, could that have something to do with the contact that they have with immigrants or, or lack of contact that they have with immigrants as opposing to just being liberal? Okay. Well, take two more questions here. Uh, John? Yeah. Um, yeah. John Burley, London School of Economics. This is primarily to Professor Bookman, but I think it's for, for both. Um, I found fascinating the stuff on Kakuma Camp, but when you said no major social institution, I was just thinking the camp itself as an institution set up in a most deliberate way. And one thing that struck me um, was the importance of settlement patterns, um, the ways in which when different communities are immigrating into an area, they are originally settled, whether they're settled in virtual ghettos or whether they're much more mixed, which might have things to do with the way housing markets work and so on. And I was wondering to what extent you looked at the importance of settlement patterns. I heard a news item just this morning when uh, um, some Muslim immigrants into, I think, Florence were saying the way it's happened in Italian cities, there aren't, there aren't ghettos. They're much more mixed, so they encounter a great deal of enmity to start with, but he's arguing that after a period of 10 years, they're getting much more integrated. And that was almost a factor of the initial starting point of the settlement pattern itself. Yeah, I think we'll take one more. Yes, this lady over here. Yeah. And maybe we'll have time for just a final, final round of questions. I know there's a couple of people. Yeah. Um, so my question is for Professor Kaufman. Yeah, um, can you speak up a little? Sorry, can you hear me? Um, so my question is, you, you never once mentioned class and the role that class plays in any of this. I mean, education is obviously important, but I think that's separate and different. And if you could talk about the issue of, of class and this neoliberal issue of removing the state and social welfare. I'm an American, and I see a lot of what's happening is, is fighting about public resources. And the question is, well, who's actually going to get certain public resources? and who's going to pay for it. <coughs> and that can be expressed ethnically or civically, et cetera. So if you could speak to that in general. Thank you. Well, Lisa, would you like to start? Yeah. Uh, sure. Yeah. OK. First question. Um, border alterations with, within, camp, within the camp. I think um, one of the things I wanted to say, but ran out of time, uh, First, having to do with the Turkana, and then we'll go inside the camp. The land that the camp was built on was under, belonged to uh, the Turkana peoples who were nomadic herders, and then they, they settled in the, in the town. Um, it was their land. Every time that the uh, camp expanded and went from one to four, the camp encroached on the land that was originally granted to the Katoma. 
Um, so in that sense, where are the borders? How, the borders between the camp and the local proximate hosts kept changing, but they didn't change in any sort of organized fashion. They changed in order to deal with the given circumstances. Inside the camp, um, groups are, are allocated housing within a certain group, uh, within a certain region. To the extent that they try to extend that region, there is violence between groups. I didn't mention that, but there is a lot of violence and because, again, competition for scarce resources, competition for area. So the violence happens exactly at the boundaries of the different group areas. Um, I made a note here, to, I think you mentioned assimilation, right? Um, so in terms of groups assimilating within the camp, um, there are several factors that actually make the groups come together. Uh, one is the English language, which is the only common language they have. And through the educational system, there's a lot of education in English, so different groups come together. The second is that they have a sport in common. The most popular sport is football. And so different ethnic groups come together to play football. And finally, Facebook is the glue that pulls these groups together. And I have seen this uh, through my own classes and my own students there. They are all on Facebook. Within any class that I have, I have different groups purposefully they do not assign me a group of Dinka, for example, but they assign me somebody from representing basically every single nationality as well as the local Turkana. And um, these are the things that, if anything's going to cause them to assimilate, it's going to be these things. Um, okay, second question has to do with um, uh, does it matter when there is no um, universal suffrage? I think the struggle goes underground if we don't have a democratic system in which one group uh, or one individual is one vote. It goes underground. I think the example might be um, South Africa during apartheid. This was unequivocally a situation where there was a struggle of a group that did not have the same voting rights as the minority. Uh, possibly it was race, I mean it was race lines, but it was also tribal lines too. And nevertheless, it, it takes a different form, but I think the, the group struggle is there. Uh, finally, settlement patterns. Um, in the case of um, the refugees, when they arrive, they are settled by the UNHCR. So they are settled in a specific place. They could arrive and not get settled if they don't register. But then they don't get their allocation of 2,100 calories per day and their 20 liters of water, etc., which they need in order to trade. So there are costs and benefits to, to being part of the formal resettlement. Um, they, uh, the refugees have no rights, according to the Kenyan government, they have no rights to leave the camp. 
They need a movement pass in order to go off the camp. Um, they cannot own property. They cannot drive a car. They cannot have a bank account. So their ability to resettle someplace else is very limited. Um, and sure, they would all love to slip out under the radar and, and resettle elsewhere, but uh, there's a really tight control on that. Okay, yeah, I, we had a few questions. There's one question on, on when I showed the graph of liberalism and uh, ethnic nationalism, is that, am I sort of implicitly bringing in, smuggling in a narrative that, that ethnic nationalism is bad? Not, no, I'm not. I hope I'm not, not doing that. I, I think there is this relationship between a generalized liberal or, orientation and higher education. Now, one thing that higher education is linked to is uh, more... Um, a greater desire to seek out novelty and difference, is that it's not implicitly a better thing or a worse thing, actually, but it just happens to be linked to the way uh, people think about nationhood in the terms of inclusion and exclusion. Um, and, and so I was just trying to more make the point that, in a way, this is not a historical legacy. It's more a function of uh, essentially people's general liberal uh, orientations. Uh, the, the question on contact is very interesting, the Oded's question on contact with immigrants. Uh, I mean, it's just very similar patterns can be seen across Europe, across the U.S. Um, in some cases, contact with immigrants reduces opposition to immigration, and, and, but that tends to occur in very small, uh, at very small levels like the neighborhood. So if you have more immigrants and if you have a more diverse neighborhood, uh, and you're a white British person, you tend to be more liberal on immigration than someone who lives in a lily-white neighborhood. However, uh, if we move up to a larger level like the local authority or the county in the U.S., uh, a more diverse local authority, more diverse county will tend to lead, all other things being equal to, a more hostile uh, attitude to immigration. So it, in a way, if you have direct personal contact with immigrants and minorities, then you have a lower opposition. But if you live in a diverse area but you don't have that contact, actually your threat levels are higher. Um, question on class over here. Very good question. Yeah, which is more important? And I actually, what's interesting, I think, is that class is, seems to be less important for predicting immigration attitudes than education levels. So even if you say control for uh, class, education is very important, but not the reverse if you control for education, class isn't. Um, and in fact, a lot of the research on support for the far right immigration attitude seems to indicate that the cultural motivations are more important. So whether you are personally unemployed or not is not really much of a predictor of whether you'll vote for, for a far right party, uh, whereas education level is much more. And I think that's related to, because education is heavily related to dimensions such as openness, but these personality dimensions, seeking novelty and so forth. And that's, I think, what's driving the link to our opposition to immigration. Well, I'm, I'm sorry I have to uh, close this session uh, because there are a lot of interest, uh, people with, uh, I'm sure, uh, <laughs> uh, ask questions. But they, you can take these things up with the speakers uh, in, in, in the break or, or later in the conference. But uh, please, uh, 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 show your gratitude to the, uh, the speakers who produced some fascinating talk, uh, two fascinating talks. Thank you very much.